John 16, 16 through 33. And this morning we're going to talk about turning sorrow into joy. Um, you may notice this, or you might not, but we're a little out of sequence in John. The reason why is because Josh is speaking next week, and I wanted Josh to uh, be another voice in our congregation teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I switched these passages. Um, I've taught on the Holy Spirit. I told Josh I'd love to have him be an additional voice teaching on the Holy Spirit. So this is the last passage in John before he gives the prayer in John 17. So this is the last thing he says before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, at least in the Gospel of John. Now, I want to take you back to the city of Rabat, Morocco. It's the year 2016. It's Christmas Day, and we're visiting our son and daughter-in-law and our, uh, young, our, our youngest grandchild. But here we are in a Muslim country, and Christmas is not on anybody's radar screen in that country. At least that's what we thought. Christmas might be really big business in Europe. It's just not really a thing in North Africa. After opening up presents in their apartment, we made a spur-of-the-moment decision to go to the resort village at Magazan, Morocco. Now, in you know, that season in Morocco, like it's, people don't go to those resorts that much. You know? So we found a great deal, spur of the moment, we zip over to Magazan. And Magazan surprised us because um, the moment we stepped into the resort, we saw beautiful scenes of quaint villages like we're in Europe. We hear Christmas music on the loudspeaker system. And all of a sudden we realize, oh, wait, they, they are celebrating Christmas on Christmas Day at this resort. And uh, we sat down to have, have dinner, and it was nonstop Christmas songs. Most of them were the secular songs, jingle bells, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, deck the halls, and things like that. And then there were some Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby tunes Bing Crosby is singing Melikaliki Maka, which is his famous old tune. So it was a little surreal because here we are on the west coast of Africa hearing Hawaiian Christmas tunes in a Muslim country with camels walking down the beach <laughs> in the distance. It was really surreal. It was, it was really fun and really, really surreal. And, and one thing struck me as we were sitting there, because they actually did get into some of the overtly Christian songs, not, not many of them, but some of the overtly Christian songs. We just stopped to listen to these. And you know, when you, when you hear those songs in a fresh way, what you realize about Christmas songs is it's joy in the midst of sorrow. It's, it's happiness against a backdrop of pain. You look at all, all the Christmas carols that we sing, you know, O Holy Night, you know, it says, long lay the world in sin and, and error pining. A lot of those songs are like that. There's joy in the midst of pain. There's happiness in the midst of hardship. There's, there's, there's this sense of victory in the midst of, of tremendous, tremendous pain. So how do we tap into that joy? If you're going through a hard time? How do you tap into the joy that apparently the Christmas season promises 
even against the backdrop of some pain. Well, Jesus is going to do something similar in this passage because what happens here is he's about ready to go to the cross. And yet in this passage, he's telling them some ways of finding joy against this, this impending painful thing, which is the cross. And what he says to them, we can principalize and also apply to us. Here are three secrets of finding, finding joy. Secret number one is that we anticipate God's supernatural intervention. Here's what he says, John 16, 16. A little while you will see me no longer, and again, a little while you will see me. Those are sort of cryptic words. Like, those are a little bit hard to understand. So let, let me remind you um, of, of what he is, he is doing. He's talking about the resurrection here. He's talking about God's ultimate miraculous intervention, resurrection from the dead. Resurrection is a paradigm for us as well, as we'll see, that when we go through difficult times, hard times, what Jesus would want us to do is remember resurrection truth. God's ultimate supernatural intervention took place at the resurrection. Now, to help us understand this, I want, again, to remind you of a little bit of the background. After supper, the disciples depart the upper room. They descend the stairs. They walk through the city streets of Jerusalem by the light of a full moon. They head to the eastern gate of the city, and they now descend down into the Kidron Valley. You've seen this picture a number of different weeks. As they're walking down into the Kidron Valley, they come across a, a vineyard, a small vineyard. Jesus begins to teach about some things about the Christian life from that vineyard. Abide in me, and I in you, and you will, you will bear much fruit. Jesus' teaching is very encouraging. However, he starts to teach about some very hard things. And so their anxiety begins to rise as they're crossing the Kidron Valley. What are some of those hard things that he taught about? He said he's going away, and they're wondering where. Where are you going? He said one of the disciples would deny him, and they're wondering who? Who's going to do this? He said that they would encounter persecution, and they're wondering, all right, when's that going to happen? When's that going to take place? He keeps on saying he's going to die, and they're, they're wondering, okay, how is this going to happen? And, through, and even though Jesus is answering their questions, their anxiety is continuing to rise as they're headed toward Gethsemane. And what Jesus is going to give them is the ultimate paradigm the resurrection paradigm for turning sorrow into joy. Now, before I explain the resurrection paradigm in, in detail, I want, just want to say we often are in situations like the disciples are in. We know that Jesus is good. We know that Jesus' teaching is good. We know that we can trust him. But we face the kind of uncertainty that brings rising anxiety. And I don't know about you, but I hate anxiety. Anybody you like anxiety? Yeah, bring it on. I love anxiety. I hate anxiety. But anxiety is a fact of human existence. When fears begin to rise, when uncertainty begins to multiply, oh, there's this rising anxiety, the tightness in the chest, the fluttery butterfly feelings. They're feeling that. They're encountering that. So Jesus gives them a paradigm for moving from anxiety to joy. And the paradigm um, <clears throat> begins, begins here. 
John 16, 16 and 17. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So that some of the disciples said to one another, what is this he's talking about? A little while and you will see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. They're very confused. The term a little while, you'll notice, occurs four times. It occurs five times totally in this passage. That little while refers to the gap between crucifixion and resurrection. That gap was part of Friday, all day Saturday, and part of Sunday. It's three calendar days, but it's less than 36 hours in terms of its elapsed time. And during that time, there would be intense pain. Jesus, of course, would encounter pain, but they're going to encounter tremendous pain during that, during that 36 hours. The disciples hear this. They have zero clue what he's talking about. As they, as they walk through the Kidron Valley, you know, Jesus is walking ahead, and they're walking behind, and they're going, hey, do you, what, like, what is he talking about? A little while. Do you know what he's talking about? No, I have no idea what he's talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? No, I haven't a clue. What's going on? And the reason why I point that out is because the word that's used in the Greek language indicates they were completely dumbfounded. They had no idea what he was talking about, and they don't ask. And sometimes you, you read this and you think, why did Jesus make this so hard to understand? Why not just say, guys, you're going to go through the worst 36 hours of your life. It's going to be part of the day on Friday, all day Saturday, part of the day on Sunday. It's going to be bad. You're going to hate it. You're not going to sleep. It's going to be awful. Why didn't you say that? Why say a little while this, a little while that? The reason why is because Jesus is teaching them how to live in his absence. He's going to go to the Father. And when we face confusing things, what Jesus wants us to do is simply ask, Lord Jesus, what do you mean by this? God, what is this all about? Jesus is teaching them to ask questions. They've been doing a good job asking questions, but they stopped here. The anxiety made them stop asking those questions. So Jesus teaches them, look, I'm going to die. You're going to be overcome with grief. Weirdly, at the same time, the world is going to rejoice. They're going to love the fact that they shut down the Jesus movement. But 36 hours later, Sunday morning is going to come, and your sorrow is going to be turned to the greatest joy imaginable. What is that? That is the resurrection paradigm. The resurrection paradigm is when you are in a place of anxiety and you actively anticipate God's supernatural breakthrough. Look, God did that with Jesus and the disciples in the first century. God has been doing that for the past 2,000 years, bringing his resurrection paradigm into the lives of believers, and supernatural breakthrough, supernatural intervention has come. So the, an the first answer to anxiety is to anticipate the supernatural intervention of God. Now, notice how Jesus illustrates this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, the, for joy that, is, uh, that a human being has been, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. What is a mom thinking when she is in labor? I only know this, like, you know, just by observation, okay? A baby is coming. A baby is coming. 
And when that child comes, it's going to be amazing. You know, you'd think that with all the pain that comes with childbirth, you'd think that mothers all over the world would, would universally say, I am never doing that again. I'm through with this. I still have PTSD from all of the pain and the trauma of childbirth. I am not going through this again. Mothers typically don't say that because the instant that child is born and the child is in the mother's arms and the child begins to nurse, it's like, okay, that pain is gone and now I love what I'm encountering right now. That's what Jesus is talking about with the resurrection. Guys, you're about to endure a brutally hard 36 hours, but man, your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. That's the resurrection, that's the resurrection paradigm. Now, let me tell you how this works in, in your life. It works in two ways. The first way is that you recognize that you are already walking in that paradigm. Jesus' resurrection took place 2,000 years ago. And what's happened in the past 2,000 years? There's been this one long victory procession of Jesus. Paul put it this way. He said, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumphal procession in Christ. Jesus' resurrection power has been operative for the past 2,000 years, and it's been operative in your life since the moment that you came to Christ. You are living in the midst of Jesus' resurrection power. Now, you may say, I don't feel it. I'm not encountering it on, on, on a regular basis. Nevertheless, positionally, you are living and operating within Jesus' resurrection power. Well, how can that, how can that be? Well, for starters, you are God's adopted child, right? He adopted you into his family. And then you're Jesus' joint heir, which means you have a fantastic future in heaven, and your joint heirship has already begun right now. Right now, you are indwelt by the Spirit, you are filled by the Spirit, you are sealed by the Spirit, meaning that you are vitally in touch with God in a deeply personal way. And to top it all off, God promises to work all things together in your life for, for good. So part of, part of anticipating the supernatural intervention of God is to recognize, look, I, I already operate in the resurrection power of Jesus right now. And what we need to do is have the eyes to see that reality. That is positional truth that God asks you to embrace by faith. And a lot of times we don't do that, particularly in anxiety. We say, God, I don't see the victory here. I don't think I'm going to achieve victory here. I feel like a failure. I feel like I've, I've just, I've lost my edge. And what God would have you do is to say, time out, time out. Here's what's really true of you. What's really true of you is that Jesus was raised so that you too might walk in newness of life. And that life is already resident inside you. It's operating in positional truth. However, there's another part to this. And the other part is that the God who raised his son from the dead loves to miraculously intervene in your life in the present. And that's the whole meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that is a prayer for the, the kingdom power that's coming in the future to break through into the present. Jesus is the king. 
We know that his amazing kingdom is coming in the future. But that future kingdom power and glory can break through into the present. And Jesus says, I want you to pray that. Pray for miraculous and supernatural intervention. Now, sometimes that breakthrough that you pray for is going to be humble, quiet, and modest. Because God loves to break through in this way um, because quiet breakthroughs build a deeply personal faith. You know, if, if you've ever had a breakthrough that you say, you know what, I can't tell anybody else that. It's, it's a very private thing between, between me and God, between me and my spouse. God did a breakthrough in, a, in an amazing way. I can't tell anybody else that. That's okay. That's okay. There are other breakthroughs that are loud and flashy and flamboyant, and the world needs to hear about them. However it comes, God loves to engineer breakthroughs. And so whenever you encounter any level of anxiety, fear, angst about your circumstances or your future, the answer is the resurrection paradigm. You are walking in the midst of Jesus' victory procession. That's the positional part. And the practical part is, I need to pray for God's supernatural inter intervention right now. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's secret number one. To turn sorrow to joy, we seek God's supernatural intervention. Here's, here's the second secret that Jesus says. And Jesus says the answer, answer to, from, about turning anxiety and, or sorrow into joy is to ask God for things and to make requests with the sense that we live in his active presence. We ask God for things. We make requests. So Jesus says, um, uh, so also you have sorrow now, but you will, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one uh, will take your joy from you, and that, and that day you will ask nothing of me. What? What do you, what do you mean? What? What do you mean, Jesus, we're not going to ask things of you? What, is that, what does that even mean? Well, here's what he means. What he means is that he will not be physically present with them. And therefore, they're not going to ask a person who is physically present with them for things in the physical present. Why? Because he's, he's going to the Father. So he continues. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you, you will receive that your joy will be made full. What Jesus is doing here is, is something amazing. He is inviting the disciples into something that I would call, I've called this before, Trinitarian prayer. Trinitarian prayer is that you are asking the Father in the name of the Son, what is that? Jesus is intentionally wanting them to think about the Trinity as they pray. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. You can pray to, the, to Jesus the Son. You can pray to the Father. You can pray to all three members of the Trinity. But the point that Jesus is making is, I want you to think about prayer as a relationship with all three members of the triune God. Now, I've, I've said this a lot before, but this is such an important thing. You have been invited into the circle of the eternal love of the triune God. And part of the way you grow in prayer is to 
let prayer be an encounter with love. So let me, let me take you back to the late 19, middle and late 1960s. The Cradle is a, a place in Evanston, Illinois. It's an adoption agency. And uh, two of my three sisters were adopted at, at the Cradle organization. Um, it's, it's, it was, I was a little kid when all this happened, but it was, it was a really cool experience, experience for me. Um, they have got kind of a cool history. They were founded in 1877, and they've been involved in some uh, really noteworthy adoptions. Uh, Bob Hope, the entertainer, adopted, uh, I think, all seven of his kids from the Cradle uh, Society. Uh, Gail Sayers, the Chicago running back, adopted his kids from, from the Cradle. Here's the thing that's, that's really cool about the stories that come from, from this organization and many others that I've... I've, I've looked at, there's always a story of redemption in an adoption. There's a child who's an orphan. There's a child with no future. There's a child who, who faces a lot of bleak prospects for the years to come. And there's a set of parents who, uh, they have love to share. They have love that, that they want to, to multiply Maybe they can't have children of their own, or maybe they can, but they want to bless an orphan. So a child with a need, a set of parents who've got a, a love relationship that they want to expand, and what happens when the child comes home, in the most ideal situations, is the child learns to bond with mom and dad. And bonding is, a, is an amazing thing. Bonding happens when parents hold the child and sing to the child and, and express word, tender words of love to the child and look at the child in the face and treat that child with unconditional love. And the day inevitably occurs when that child who was once an orphan, now adopted, comes into mom and dad's room on a Saturday morning. Maybe the child is three or four years old. They jump up into the bed between mom and dad and they say, Mom, I love you. Daddy, I love you. What's happened to that child? That child recognizes the, the love of a community. Mom and dad, with love to share, adopted a child, and that child now senses that he or she has been invited into a stable community of love. And that's you. That's you. You have been invited into a stable community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a stable community of the most perfect love possible. And part of it, turning in, uh, sorrow into joy is to be able to recognize that love of the triune God. And, and most of us pass over that. And the thing that allows you to encounter the love of the triune God is prayer, prayer. So you say, you say, okay, so does that mean that I need to like carve out like five minutes a day to pray? Or if I'm really spiritual, carve out an hour to pray? Or maybe if I'm really amazing, two hours to pray, and it, will that help me fall in love with the triune God? And my answer to that is maybe, but probably not. Let, let me define prayer for you. 
This is the simplest definition of prayer. Prayer is talking with God about the things that you and God are doing together. Now, if that's true, what that means is that prayer is not a time in your day, and I'm all for times in your day. That's really good. But it's not primarily that. Prayer is you carrying on a running conversation with God throughout the day where you're bringing Him into your work, you're bringing Him into your play, you're bringing Him into your exercise, you're bringing Him into your leisure pursuits. Everything during the day, you're bringing Him into that, and you're talking to Him about those things that you're doing during the day. That's basic foundational prayer. And when you begin to pray that way, you begin to sense the love of God. Now, yes, include 15 minutes of prayer where you're alone, or, or five, or however long you want to pray. Include those things. But foundational prayer is you bringing the presence of God into your day and talking to Him about what's going on in your life. That's when you begin to sense the love of God. In that space, what God does is He changes you. Now, let me tell you about something that happened to me about probably three years ago. Uh, I, I had this big, big prayer request. It wasn't the one I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. It was different. And I, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed about this. I prayed about this. And one day, Cindy and I were driving in the car, and I'm silently praying about this again. And I felt like God said to me this, Rod, I want you to worship me in the place of this unfulfilled desire. I thought, oh, okay. I'm not even sure how, how to process that. I want you to fellowship with me in the place of this unfulfilled aspiration. So I began to do that. And rather than pray that that thing would happen, what I did was I said, Lord, I'm going to enjoy you as I encounter the feelings of unfulfilled aspiration regarding this thing. That became a hugely significant thing for me um, and just encountering God's love. And then I realized about six months later, God, thank you that you didn't answer that prayer. <laughs> because had you answered that prayer, there's a lot of things that would not have happened in our family that are really, really good. Thank you. Thank you that you didn't do that. But what I was doing was I was encountering God's love. And one of the ways you turn sorrow into joy is through the kind of prayer that invites him into, into everything. Now, let's, let's look at a third secret that he gives us. The third secret is to receive Jesus' peace, even, even in chaotic circumstances. I love these words. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So you look at the statement and you, and you ask, is that even true? Like when he prayed this prayer, was, was that even true? Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to be whipped and mocked and lifted up onto a wooden beam. 
his hands and feet are going to be nailed into this cross. He's going to be shamed. He's going to cry out uh, on, on, the, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's, it's just sort of strange that he would say, I've overcome the world when all that hadn't even happened yet. So, so why, why, would he, why would he do that? Why would he say that? Well, the reason why is because he knows for sure that he's going to rise from the dead, and therefore he can speak as if this, this has already taken place. So think about the position that you're in. You're in the, the exact same position. Yes, you're going to go through tribulation in your life. I, I wish it wouldn't happen for all of you, but all of you will face some measure of tribulation at some point in the future of your life. You'll face it. However, you um, are also in a place where your victory is so certain that it's going to take place. The Greek word for victory is Nike or Nikeo. And he uses that word, I'm victorious over the world. And even though he said this on the cross, his resurrection was so certain that he can speak that way. So what about you? Here's what God says about you. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those are all in the past. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those are all in the past. Those whom he justified, he also, wait a second, <laughs> glory is in the future. But he still puts it in the past because it's so certain about your life that you're living as if you're already glorified. So Jesus' overcoming power is so certain in your life that you can take peace in that, in that overcoming power. You can take peace in that overcoming strength. And for starters, you can go back to this verse here. We know that for, all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You're an overcomer. You're victorious. Now, you may encounter feelings of defeat in the moment, but your ultimate victory is so secure that it's as if you're walking in that victory dynamically and dramatically in the present. Now, that raises a question, what, what, is this, what is this peace like? What is this peace like? I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. What is that peace like? Well, <clears throat> that peace is, um, is the peace of well-being. It's the peace of good fortune. It's the peace of good, of good welfare. It's, it's, it's that peace that means it's right with my soul. That's the kind of peace that he's talking about. Think, about. think about the kind of peace that you would have in this situation. Imagine that you have a very wealthy relative. That relative dies, leaving you a fortune of $10.5 million. You think, oh boy, that changes my entire future. After you hear about that, you're driving in the car and your oil sending switch stops, the oil stops flowing through your car, your engine grinds to a complete stop, you've destroyed your car. Now you're sitting there in that car thinking, okay, my car is now destroyed. How, how, how worried are you now? 
You just inherited all this money. Are you stressed? Are you anxious? No. Because, you know, I can handle this. It's going to be okay. I can handle this. That's the position that you're in. No matter what happens in your life, the peace of God can be there because you have this dynamic relationship with Him where He has raised you up with Him, and He's the kind of God who wants to intervene for you in the moment. doesn't mean you won't go through tribulation. You will. Jesus just promised it. But the peace can be there that would not be there, would not be there otherwise. <clears throat> Notice that Jesus commands us to enter into it. Um, let not your heart, hearts be troubled, he says. He says, that, that means we're supposed, to, we're supposed to address our emotions and say, you know what, I'm not going to give in to my anxiety. I'm going to move toward that peace. I'm not going to give in to my fears. I'm going to move dynamically toward that, toward that peace. It's a little bit like flying with a set of instruments. If you're a pilot and you are instrument trained and instrument uh, <clears throat> equipped, you don't care if the clouds are around you. You don't care if it's stormy out. Well, you might care a little bit. But because you're so good at flying by the instruments, you're able to fly and land the plane. Let not your heart be troubled is a, a command to don't look at the swirling, chaotic circumstances around, the, around you and let your heart be drawn into anxiety. As opposed to that, encounter peace. Move toward that sense of peace. Now, let's move to some takeaways. How does this work practically? Well, first of all, let me go back to the big idea. The main idea of Jesus' words is this. Real joy in a turbulent world comes as we relate interactively to the guy, to the one who empowers us, the one who loves us, and the one who overcame the world. That's where real, real joy comes in a turbulent, turbulent world. So first takeaway is I just encourage you, be a, be a really good asker. Be a really good asker. Ask for a lot of different things in your life. Uh, I know a lot of people who say, I'm not going to ask for much because asking is selfish. I don't want to be selfish. My view is completely different. Asking is about the relationship. If what you're asking God for is wrong, you'll understand that in the process of prayer. If what you're asking for is too small, you'll know that in the process of prayer. Asking becomes the way that you learn to relate interactively with God. To ask is to fellowship with the triune God. But here's the caveat. The caveat is, it's really important to remember, God is good. He's good. If you ask and you get something in return from God, celebrate that goodness with gratitude. If you ask and God's timing is not quite right yet, express your gratitude as you wait. If you ask and God says, I'm not going to give you this, I'm going to give you this, express your gratitude there as well. You got to remember, God is good. And so as you, as you ask, remember his goodness and express gratitude. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is cultivate a spirit-filled positivity. Cultivate a spirit-filled positivity. I, I want to I call this strategic joy 
Because what strategic joy is, is it's pushing back against our common tendency to descend into angst and anxiety and fear and catastrophic thinking and so on. If, if I were to ask you to raise your hands about how many of you encounter fear and make decisions on the basis of fear, and I'm not asking you to do this, but if I were to ask that question, very few of you would raise your hand. If I were to ask, how many of you think that most people make decisions out of fear? Everybody would raise their hand. Most people do that. Not me. Not me. And then we'd all laugh and go, yeah, okay. I do it too. I do it too. What strategic joy is, is it's my commitment to push back on the anxiety, push back on the angst, push back on the fear and the catastrophic thinking, push back on that stuff by exercising my mind toward a spirit-filled positivity and joy. If Jesus says, if, if, if he's overcome the world, like, wow, I can seize on that and maintain a spirit-filled positivity and joy because that's my, that's my future. Here's the final takeaway. Uh, allow yourself to receive Jesus' love as you encounter grace. You know, in verse 32, Jesus predicted that they would be scattered. And guess what? They were scattered. As the authorities seize Jesus and arrest him and detain him, the disciples are seized with panic, and they bolt, and they flee. Jesus had said to them, follow me, and they refused to follow him. Jesus says, I want you to, I want you to pick up your cross and follow me. They refused to do that that night. They refused to do that. If you fail, and you will, every one of us will fail from time to time, don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up. Because the Peter who fled that night is the same one to whom Jesus said, uh, Peter, do you love me? Great. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Great. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, feed my sheep. Peter failed, and yet Jesus restored him after a sense of failure. So allow yourself to receive Jesus' love as you encounter his grace. Most people take out this invisible piece of rope, and they flog themselves in the back. You bad person. You failed. You, you idiot. What were you thinking? What did you do? And we don't need to do that because we're invited back into the mercy and the grace of, of Jesus' love. Look, I, I love it that Jesus isn't going to, to the cross in a morose and gloomy and defeatist mood. I'm not doing that. Um, he says, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. There's a sense in which I am so confident in what the Father is going to do in my life, I can say, it's a done deal. It's already happened. And the same thing is true, the true in your life. God, in his thought process, has already glorified you. That's so sure, it's so certain, it's as if it's already taken place. And therefore, we can walk 
and that sense of joy, even in the chaos that swirls around us. Well, now as we want to transition to communion, what I want to do is I want to read to you um, the, the Christmas story. So here's what it says in Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As I think about the name that is used here, Emmanuel, the name God with us, it's a name that we can seize this morning. Jesus this morning is our Emmanuel. He's with us. If you know Jesus Christ, he's with you right now. He's beside you. He's spiritually near you. And as we celebrate this communion, it's important for us just to, to remember that fact. We are taking the communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and Jesus' presence is right here. Some of you feel it. Some of you don't. doesn't matter whether you feel it or not. You know that it's true. So as you come to the communion table, I encourage you to come with a sense of the presence of Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He then took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. I want you to take this in memory of me. You come as you feel led to the communion table and let's, let's sense the presence of the Lord as we take communion.